So for the rest of us here today, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. And now today is Global Sunday for us as a church. And days like this are an opportunity to bring attention to this critically important aspect to the church's vision statement. We exist to be a biblical community where the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives, renews the city, and impacts the world. Now notice in our vision statement that transform lives, renews the city, and impacts the world are all present together in this statement. That they are not in competition with one another. They are all fruits of the gospel in your life. The biggest caution I want to give to you this morning is not to ignore this message. And believe and assume that just because God has called you here in the city for a season, you know, in South Loop and in Pilsen and University Village and Bronzeville and in Hyde Park, that you're all good. Now, this might be true for some of you, but I don't believe that this can be true for everyone. That it's hard to believe that almost out of a 300-person church, that God is calling everyone to stay local. God has been calling some of you to go and my prayer is that today would be that moment of surrender. And for those who are not called to be a goer, that this message would begin a commitment or renew a commitment to send as many people as you can with your prayers and resources. So with that, let's read a section of our verses and then we'll jump in, okay? So Romans 10, and let's just read verses 14 to 17. It says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a man by the name of Don Ritchie, an Australian man, and he lived across the street from the Sydney Harbor. And in this part of the harbor, it was also known as a notorious suicide spot. Until his death in 2012, for 50 years of his life, he dedicated it to saving many lives. That he stopped over 160 people from jumping off the cliff that he would go to these distraught individuals as they looked over to Sydney Harbor and he could tell right away what they were thinking. And he would go up to them and invite them to his house for a cup of tea, that he would talk with them through their issues and pull them literally off from the ledge of death. And what's interesting is that the name of this suicide spot where, where he saved so many people from death is called the Gap. It's called the Gap. Church, did you know that we too are called to stand in the gap? Did you know that there are billions of people right now who are facing death, but instead of jumping into the Pacific Ocean, they're jumping into an abyss without Christ for all eternity? That there is no gap more urgent than global missions. 
At the very most, a third of the people on earth claim to be Christians. And what that means is that there are over 4.5 billion people on this earth who do not claim to know or love Jesus Christ. And it's estimated that half of those 4.5 billion people are unreached. And to be unreached means that these are people who have no chance of hearing the gospel at all before they die. They have no opportunity to respond. That is over 2 billion people. There is no mission activity, no church planting, no Christian presence. And for us, for us here in the West, in Chicago, who are saturated with the gospel on TV, radio, social media, podcasts, books, churches on every block, you know, broadcast, live streams like this, we have a responsibility with this precious gospel to stand in the gap. You know, today we continue in one of the hardest sections in all of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it's in these chapters, Paul is talking to believers who are struggling with the sovereignty of God. That for the last eight chapters, chapters 1 through 8, Paul has expounded beautifully on the righteousness of God and how in the person and work of Jesus Christ, salvation has come. But there are critics out there. And the critics are asking, if the gospel is so true, why have so many Jews rejected Christ? Does this mean that God's plan can be rejected? Does it mean that his mercy and power are failing? No. Paul sets this up really strongly in chapter 9 by teaching on God's unconditional election and how God will love whom he will love and hate whom he will hate. God's power is not overwhelmed by Israel's rejection of Jesus. He is sovereign over all. That he is so sovereign that it's in Israel's rejection God brings salvation to the nations. Verse 20 and 21 here. It says this, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have found by those who did not seek me, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what we have here is that Paul is quoting prophecy from Isaiah 65 that even before Christ came, it was prophesied that the Gentiles would come to saving faith, that I have been found by those who did not seek me. Those are the Gentiles. I've been found by them. I have found them. And then Israel, on the other hand, fulfilled the prophecy of rejection in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2. Then in verse 21, it's a picture of God with his arms wide open, ready for an embrace, being incredibly vulnerable to these sinful people. That it says in verse 21, all day long I have held out my hands. I have held it out, held it out for salvation, for the Jews, for Israel to come. But how did they respond? They crucified Jesus Christ. When Paul quotes the prophets, Paul is establishing that the Jews' rejection of Jesus did not catch God off guard. If anything, it proved again that God is sovereign and his mission to reach the nations is unstoppable. So what we're going to see in our verses today is God's means to accomplish this incredible mission. And here are the three points that are going to move us along. First, the gospel confronts. Second, the gospel converts. And finally, the gospel commissions. So first point, the gospel confronts. 
verses 5 and 7. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. You know, Paul shows us here why the Jews ultimately rejected Christ, and it's because of their self-righteousness. They trusted in their works to save them. Paul says in verse 5, righteousness that is based on the law. That there is a salvation to be received that is outside of Christ. It's possible to have a salvation outside of Christ. And that's when you follow the law of God perfectly, just like Jesus. But here's the problem. No one can do that. Paul's already established our sinful depravity in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And as we've just studied in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law of God and he drills it from the external all the way to the heart. That it might be easy for us to say, you know what, I haven't committed murder. But Jesus would then teach, have you had anger in your heart? Because if you had, you had the same heart of murder. Have you committed adultery? (laughs) No, I haven't done that. But have you lusted? It's impossible to live up to God's perfect standard. It's impossible to save yourself. And when you consider all the major world religions, they all share this one belief. It's always a works-based salvation. Hinduism has about 330 million gods who must be appeased through some type of ritual or self-denial to reach, to reach heaven. Hinduism also believes in reincarnation, a central belief where you can work your way into heaven through births, deaths, and rebirths. Buddhism believes that reaching nirvana, the state of perfect peace and happiness, is by practicing the noble eightfold path. In Islam, paradise is attained when Allah weighs a follower's good works against their bad deeds on a scale on Judgment Day. In Judaism, the primary audience Paul is writing to, heaven is attained by keeping the law and its ceremonies. Every major world religion in the world functions under the curse of verse 5. It's the curse of self-righteousness. And it's a curse that will only breed fear, uncertainty, and hopelessness because when can you know that you are ever good enough? You can't until it's too late. How can you bridge the infinite gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness? You can't do that. When we trust in our own works to save us, it will only lead to eternal destruction. But Paul continues here in verse 6 by presenting another way to salvation. And it's by faith in someone else's righteousness. Verse 6 and 7 again. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. There is only one religion in the entire world that promises salvation on not what you can do, but a promise on what's been already done by Jesus Christ. That this is a righteousness that is not a quest. You don't need to go up to heaven for your righteousness, nor do you have to reach down into the depths of your willpower to obey because Christ has already come down from heaven. He's already gone to the abyss for you in his death. 
Every world religion teaches that salvation is a wage to be earned. Christianity is a gift of salvation to be received. And thus, everyone in this world is confronted with these two choices. Will you trust in yourself, which will lead to death? Or will you trust in Christ, which leads to eternal life? This is what we are all confronted, all humanity, all across the world. And this leads to our second point, the gospel converts. Verses 8 to 13 here. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." In these verses, Paul now explains what it means to receive the good news of Jesus Christ and thus be saved. It's to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, there's some important elements to receiving saving faith. First, notice in our verses that it always has to be a heart change. In the Bible, when it talks about heart, it's more than emotions, but it's the control center of your life. That salvation is more than just an intellectual affirmation of the gospel as well, too. Because in the book of James, it says that even the demons believe in God and they shudder, but demons aren't saved. Demons don't love Jesus. Salvation is a renewing of the heart. It's having sinful desires replaced with desires to love Jesus. Secondly, it's recognizing that Jesus is Lord. The Greek word Paul is using for Lord here is in the Old Testament where we get the word Yahweh. To call Jesus Lord is to recognize that he's God and worthy of your surrender. In addition, it's also believing that God raised him from the dead. He paid the penalty of sin to the full. He conquered death and he, is, he now sits victorious over all creation. That if you believe this in your heart and confess this in your mouth, you will be saved. Notice here that salvation is not a free-for-all where you can believe anything you want, feel anything you want. It's only by the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this is where people get worked up about Christian mission. Why is it so narrow why does Jesus have to be the only way, truth, and life? John 14, 6. Let me just say that it would be narrow if Jesus wasn't the only way. But if what the Bible says is true, that we are all condemned before God, and there is nothing that we can do to bridge the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness, and then you find that God makes a way through Jesus Christ, that would not be narrow. That would be the best news in the world. Right now, we're experiencing a pandemic, COVID-19. 
What if someone was to say that we have found the cure for COVID-19? We have found the cure. It is 100% effective that if you take it right now, immediately you'll be healed. But here's the thing. It's the only cure, only cure for COVID-19. Now, how many people are going to say, how rude. That is so narrow. No, the world would be celebrating that there is a life-saving cure, a cure available to anybody and everybody who trusts in this medicine, and in our case here, who trusts in Jesus. Verses 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is not rooted in our works. It's not rooted on what's external, like race, gender, culture, background, education level, morality, skin color. The only requirement to salvation is that you call out to the name of Jesus for salvation. And anyone can do that. The gospel is for all people and all nations. This is why you see Christians evenly split all over the world, in Europe, North America, and it is currently exploding in Latin America, Asia, and Africa because salvation is a matter of the heart and not of the externals. And if any of us are thinking that heaven is going to be a group of white American English-speaking Christians, you're going to be very, very disappointed. It's going to be filled with every tribe, nation, and tongue. And know that every time you pray, you are praying to a brown-skinned Middle Eastern refugee. The gospel is for the nations. The offer of salvation is real, and it is for all. It is for all. But here's the next question Paul then asks. How then are they, the world, everybody, to believe in this gospel. And here's the third point. The gospel commissions. Verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they call on him? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, for they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what has been heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. What we have in these verses is God's plan in how the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth, and it's by sending us to preach the gospel. You know, in John chapter 17, verse 18, in the Lord's, you know, prayer, final prayer, his high priestly prayer, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That Jesus saves us from the world. He saves us from the flesh. He saves us from the world. But he also sends us back into the world to be his witnesses. To be a Christ follower is to be a sent one. Being witnesses for Christ is not so much an activity that we do, but an identity that we embrace. It's not something that you can just turn on and off. It's not some activity that you do just for 20 minutes here and there. Sentness is an, act, 
is an identity. And when it's an identity, it should radically change the way you see everything. It should change the way that you see the purpose of your singleness, the purpose of your marriage, your career, your home, your friendships, your school, your city, your world. To be redeemed by Christ is to be commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel, to go and to preach the gospel to as many who can hear it. Now, I know that you hear the word preach, and you're thinking, I don't want to do Kenson's job. I don't want to do Pastor's Rafe's job. I don't want to do that. You know, the preaching that Paul's talking about is not this form of professional public preaching ministry. It's preaching in its simplest form. It's the proclamation. It's the sharing of the good news of Jesus to others. This is how God's plan is going to work and how the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. This is how the nations will believe by hearing the gospel. It's by sending the church. It's by sending you to proclaim it, that we have been entrusted with with this good news. And we owe it to those who have not heard to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to them. Paul says in Romans 1.14, I am, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the ignorant. Now, the word obligation means debtor. It means to be a debtor. But the question is, how could Paul feel indebted to people that he has never, ever met? It's because he knew the gift of the gospel was not just for him. That God didn't save him because he was more worthy than anyone else in the, in the entire world. But God sovereignly elected him. He sovereignly elected you to be blessed with the gospel so that you would bless others. The privilege of hearing the gospel and embracing it is the responsibility of spreading the gospel. And for those who might say, well, how is it loving and fair, you know, for God to condemn people for not believing in him? First, God loves because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's clear. Secondly, God continues to love the world because he sends us. What is unloving, what is not fair, is for those who have heard so much about Jesus to do so little with it. That is crazy. God has not left the world to burn. He has established and commissioned the church. The question is if we're going to go and preach. Carl F.H. Henry, an American theologian, once said, the gospel means good news, but it's only good news if it gets to someone in time. You know, verse 15, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, Paul here quotes Isaiah 52. It's a picture of a herald who brings the good news to a battlefield that the war is over. And can you just imagine that in the thick of battle, people are laying dead all over the ground, you know, and a herald comes, the war is over. Can you just imagine the reaction? You know, you know, imagine that those in the prison camp in Nazi, in Nazi Germany are waiting to go into the gas chambers and then someone announces right before you're about to go in, the war is over. The allied armies have won. The Nazis all have surrendered. There would be shoutings of joy. You would kiss the messenger's feet because those feet would be so beautiful because those feet brought the mouth that proclaimed the good news. 
In the same way, we get to herald the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of what's been done for you, the good news that the war with Satan, death, and sin is over, the good news that there is a heavenly eternity waiting for us. Liberation has come. We get to, you know, we, 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 we get to, not have to, bring the good news to the entire world. The gospel commissions us to the nations. That it's not only just a responsibility we have to share it with the nations, it's also our privilege and joy. So what are some practical steps for us as a church? Let me just give you a few. First, let's pray that people in our church will say yes to God. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest. We need to start with prayer. With over 4.5 billion people who don't know Jesus, this should be a daily prayer for all of us because this is a God-sized task that we should ask God to raise up messengers from our midst. And once again, I want to invite you to join us as an entire church to a virtual global prayer night on Wednesday, October 7th, this Wednesday at 7 p.m. This is a very powerful way for us who are all in quarantine right now to lay our hands on places that we cannot physically access right now and to hear directly from some of our global workers who are on the ground as we speak. Another practical tip is this, is for you to give to help others to go. Now, God might not be calling you to live overseas, but maybe you have the means to send others. You know, as a church, we're committed to the Park 100, and it's our goal to see 100 Park members go and commit themselves to making disciples of the nations. And so far, so far for us as a church, we have sent close to 20 people overseas. That in these last two months, we have sent three of the Park 100 to the nations, and in the next two months, we're sending three more to move to another country. And this is all happening in the middle of a pandemic. The gospel is unhindered. Praise God for that. And for us as a church, we want to see many of you go. And when you do go, we want you to know that your church has your back in encouragement, in prayer, and finances. That no one who is sent by God from our church should ever wonder if their church is going to take care of them. We who are sending should be as committed to the mission as those who are going. You know, there's a story of William Carey who served as a missionary in India from 1793 to his death in 1834. And he's often called the father of the modern missions movement. In church circles, the name William Carey is well known. But a name that isn't as well known is Andrew Fuller. Fuller was the president of the Baptist Mission Society. And Fuller believed in the sentness, our identity of sentness, of every believer to spread the gospel. And right before Kerry left for India, he told Andrew Fuller these words, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. 
Fuller held the rope of supporting William Carey until his death. He's supported by raising funds. He's supported by preaching missions and sermons. He's supported and advocated for students who wanted to go to India. In many ways, Andrew Fuller's missionary impact was just as profound and far as William Carey's, and he did it by sending. God is calling us, some of us, to hold the rope for others as they reach the unreached. You know, I want to encourage you that if you want to know more about what it means to take the first step in this, don't walk, run. Every location, South Loop especially, you have a global mobilizer, you also have a global team who are committed to serving you in this way. Reach out to Pastor Rafe and he'll be glad to connect you to these individuals. You know, to close out our time here, I want to pray for you. And I'm going to do something that I normally don't do, and it might be a little bit weird doing this at home. But as you're sitting at home right now, watching this message, if you believe that God has laid this conviction on your heart to at the very least consider, consider global missions, would you stand wherever you're at? Wherever you're at. If you're on your couch, stand up from your couch or dining room. Just stand up wherever you're at. If you believe that God is calling you to this. As a church, I want us to pray for you because the challenges you face are going to be hard. Satan's attacks to discourage you and dissuade you will be aggressive, but I want you to know that your church has your back. And more importantly, that God has placed his spirit within you to empower you to be his witnesses. So please stay standing, and let me just pray for you and all those who are listening. Father God, it is not a mystery to know what your will is. That, Father, so many of us are always constantly praying, God, what is your will? What is your will? What is your will? Father, you laid out so clearly here in Romans 10. And, Father, it is to send us to preach the gospel to the nations. That, God, that we are to give our lives to that whether we go or we're helping others to go. That, Father, that this is a God-sized task that only you can do. So, Father, we come to you in prayer asking, Father, that you would provide the means to make your mission happen. And, God, for those who are standing right now at home, who are whoever's watching, that, God, that you would continue to lay this conviction upon their hearts. That whatever doubts that they're facing, whatever anxieties, whatever insecurities that they're wrestling, with, the what-ifs that they keep asking themselves, God, help them to delay no longer. But help them, Father, right now where they are at to surrender to this calling and to follow you. So God, Lord, help all of us, Lord, to take that next step and to run right to it. And God, we would pray that in this moment right now, for those who are standing, they got that this would be one of those defining moments of when they made the decision to go for your glory and for your son's name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.